Before you can create a healthy relationship with others, you first have to create a healthy relationship with yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk About It with your host, Dr. Janie Lacey. Janie is a nationally respected psychotherapist, and on this show, she and her featured guests will help you discover and break patterns in your life that can contribute to self-sabotage and unhealthy relationships. Now, here is Dr. Janie Lacey. What comes to mind when you think of dysfunctional relationships? America's music duo, Ike and Tina Turner, who were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991 and best known for their musical talent and rocky relationship. All relationships are more or less dysfunctional in different ways and at different times. There's no perfect relationship. They don't exist. But in order to stay in a committed relationship, most intimate partners adopt to many disappointments or disillusionments during the time when they are together and when they are apart from each other. Many couples push relationship distresses under the rug without resolution and discover much later that they're unable to recover from these festering sorrows. Today, our guest, Deborah Kaplan, who is a licensed therapist who specializes in helping clients overcome addictions, issues related to sex and love, relationship struggles, and unresolved traumatic stress. Her expertise in working with sex addiction and compulsivity also includes working with couples and spouses affected by internet and pornography addiction, emotional sexual affairs, and financial infidelity. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the show, Deborah Kaplan, who is the author of Battle of the Titans, Remastering the Forces of Sex, Money, and Power in Relationships. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Deb, could you share with us exactly what is Battle of the Titans and what was your inspiration to write this book? I wrote Battle of the Titans after, uh, actually, the, the first book in the, um, con- in the concept of bringing money, sex and money and power together was For Love and Money. Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationship. That book I wrote and came out in 2013. While that book dealt with issues around sexual infidelity and betrayal and financial infidelity and betrayal, because often the two are very closely linked, the uh, focus of that book was really more for couples who were dealing with an active addiction. For example, if there was alcoholism or sex addiction or uh, work addiction. In the years subsequent to the book being published came the Me Too movement, the Harvey Weinstein, um, the the finality to him and his escapades being brought to clear justice. However, throughout time in my practice, couples would come in, individuals would come in who were not involved with any kind of addiction in their relationship. And as you said, there is no perfect relationship. All relationships have their dysfunction, and they have their strengths. It was for those couples that I decided I needed to write another book for my clients, for the couples, for the workshops that I do, to serve the population, which is the majority of us that are in a relationship with someone wherein there is an issue of a power differential. And that pretty much describes almost all relationships. It was due to that motivation that I sat down and began to write what became Battle of the Titans. 
And that was the inspiration. It was also my time on Wall Street, which was behind all of my writings uh, dealing with power, sex, and money. So explain to us what exactly is a titan (laughs) for those people that heard the word, but they may not necessarily know what it means and how it plays into the context of our conversation. Well, it's interesting for for anyone who writes, there's always the concept that people know there's the book that one as a writer starts out to write. And then there's the book that shows up. I originally began to write this book. uh, I started putting things together in 2017, 2018, And the book I thought I was going to write was not the book that showed up because in earnest in January, I put the book aside for a while because I just couldn't find the spark line. I couldn't find the through line. The book wasn't uh, jiving. It wasn't coming together. And in January of 2020, before the pandemic hit, we didn't really know what was on our doorstep. I began to look at financial infidelity and power dynamics of control and exploitation in relationship. And I began to sit down and think about what motivated me to write this and what what did I want to write about? And what kept coming up is what I learned about my family in origin. When I was young, my parents would fight about money all the time. And I remember thinking about my relationship with my dad and his relationship my dad and my mom together, it was like a battle of the titans. And that is how the title, the, uh, the chapter, it happens to be the, the chapter, Battle of the Titans, which is the eponymous title of the book now, is where I realized that not only was the clashing of power between myself and my dad, my dad and my mother, and also with couples, the clash of what forces around sex and money, and all the way around, Titan really seemed to fit. And therefore, the book was then put on the frame, if you will, of Greek mythology, because in many ways, Battle of the Titans is part of the Olympiad, is part of the Greek mythology around the Titans. I absolutely love uh, Greek mythology, and I love that old school movie, Clash of the Titans. But you, yeah. uh, you've mentioned, um, Deb, that you've worked on Wall Street for, for many years. So what has your experience taught you about money and power, specifically when it comes to relationships? That's a very good question. Um, so for the listeners, uh, I'll give some background story. I, my history is in trading. I'm a commodity option trader, and I've worked on Wall Street in many different capacities, And anyone who knows, even stereotypically, money is what drives Wall Street. Even more than money, it's power. Who's got the money? Who doesn't have the money? Who has the information? Who doesn't have the information? And control is very important as well as money and how those two come together. I would say that my time on Wall Street, what really showed me is how money but power is coveted. And I saw that play out on so many different levels. As a commodity option trader, I worked for myself. I was trading in the pits uh, between the 9-11, when the actual World Trade Towers came down, the World Trade Center came down. The commodity option floor was in the World Trade Center. And uh, the issue of money and who could be bought and who 
isn't bought and at what price somebody is bought. Now, that is going to be a very inflammatory statement for your listeners, and you might get a lot of pushback on that. The notion of money and what at what point people are in, everyone has a price. These are this is not something that I'm condoning, it's not something that I'm actually endorsing. This is in the background, if you think in terms of how Wall Street often operates, which really kind of comes into at some point. If you want to ask, we can talk about the Me Too movement on Wall Street and how it's almost virtually sidestepped a lot of what has happened in other realms and bastions of our society. Well, since you mentioned it, you know, you are a female that was working on Wall Street yeah. and uh, based, based off of everything that came through in the Me Too movement, people sharing their stories. I would imagine that you've um, witnessed or seen your own uh, share of being a female in a male dominant industry. Yes and no. Um, I thought long and hard about this when I wrote the book, Again, um, some of this, these topics are very difficult and they're very charged when we're talking about sex and we're talking about money. When we start talking and move into the area of control and exploitation, I want to ask the listener to think in terms of what comes up for you. And for me, I have a very strong personality in many ways. I had to I had to think back to what is my history on Wall Street and how fortunately or maybe by design I was able to navigate those very complex waters without having experienced exploitation. I came into the um business world believing that I could do anything and I was as knowledgeable And I was as deserving of a seat at the table as any male counterpart. And I was not willing to trade on sex to get my way ahead. I was not willing to do anything outside of my value system to get ahead. Therefore, I knew where the lines were. And I knew what I was willing to do. And I knew, more importantly, what I was not ever going to do. Whether or not my future was held in the hands of any other uh, individual, a manager, a boss, be it male or female, I was not willing to compromise on who I am and how I succeeded. To that end, I'm very fortunate by never having had to put my success or my future in business on Wall Street in anyone else's hands. It was going to work for me or it was not going to work for me. In particular, when I was down on the trading floor, I didn't trade anyone else's money. I was called a local. I I traded my own personal money. And therefore, whether I succeeded or not was really only on my shoulders. It was not in anyone else's pockets. And therefore, I can say from a personal perspective that I have never had to, uh, had never been faced with an experience where I had to make a decision about whether I trade on my values try to trade on my sex appeal or try to use sex as a way to get ahead. I recognize that not all women, females can say that. So I I, I recognize the um, perhaps specialty or or, or the, um, the sanctity of that statement. That sounds like while you were working on Wall Street, the uh, Deb who we know today was being birthed boundaries and knew who she was. (laughs) 
Yeah, that I came into my I came into that field knowing who I was and growing up watching my parents argue about money. There I would sit, and I, I talk about this in the second chapter. I would sit in the middle seat, in the back seat of the car, listening. As a middle child, you know, uh, I had an older brother. I have an older brother. I have a younger sister. I am almost the quintessential middle child, and I didn't get my voice heard. When I lecture today, I half-jokingly say, people are listening to me now. You know, I'm able to get my voice heard. What I did have was a very clear view into the front seat of the car where I thought, listening to my mom, listening to my dad, and how my mom would inadvertently disempower herself or in some ways drive the dynamic between them. And I was learning, quietly taking in information, learning about how to navigate relationships and how to hold my own. I think part of it is who I am as a person and part of it is what I grew up with and learning to get my voice heard and learning to make my presence known. And the birthing of who Deb is today is a culmination of all my experiences in life that brought me to today. Well, I completely, I completely understand uh, some of those aspects from one middle child to another that grew up as a, as a middle child. So I understand yeah. that observer not wanting to rock the boat. And here we are. Yeah. But, you know, it was really interesting to me in chapter one, when you've discussed narcissist and power, that good old word narcissist. We often hear the word narcissist thrown around quite often. So can you help our listeners and our viewers understand what makes a narcissist a narcissist? Help us spill the tea, Deb. <laughs> Wow, that you and I could talk for not only this whole hour, but we could talk for several hours there, uh, thereafter. The word narcissist, the description has many, has many nuances to it because we could talk from a clinical perspective of what the diagnostic criteria are for what a narcissistic personality disorder is. When you and I are talking in this way about a narcissist, Probably every single one of us knows somebody who is self-absorbed, takes all the oxygen in the room, needs to have their self-worth validated by external sources, wants to be the center of attention and attraction, and cannot allow their own uh, ability to just be in the world with other people. They have to be ahead. They have to get the attention. That still wouldn't capture what happens underneath the developmental uh, form, forming of someone who is narcissistic. Because what we're really talking about is the developing wound to the ego. All of us, every single one of us when we're born are dependent upon a caregiver. And if our needs aren't met, if we're not attuned to, it isn't as if those needs go away. We still have to get those needs met. And if we are somehow... Uh, emotionally stunted or arrested development at a, at a specific age or state of development, we're going to try to get those needs met regardless. That means if we don't grow out of that emotional immaturity of it's about me or the world hasn't smacked us back and said, hey, you know, you got to learn how to play nice in the sandbox because we all have to get along, then we will somehow still uh, operate in the world despite pushback of it isn't always about us, 
We will operate from that place of, oh, but it is. And continually from a self-centered perspective, make our interactions and our relationships self-serving. And you're right. I mean, we can speak about narcissism and narcissists all day. But, you know, one of the things I do want to stress, because sometimes I'll hear this with um, female clients, is that, uh, and you can help us clear this up, narcissist does not tie to a gender. It can be a a female. It could be our mom. It could be our dads. It can be lots of different um, people. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. If you, if you have a, um, if, if you're human, if you're walking on two feet, you can certainly, it's an equal opportunity perspective. Equal opportunity perspective. So it could be your best friend. <laughs> it can be your parent. It can be your child. It can be your spouse or partner. It can be a boss, a friend, a colleague. It can be anybody. Women may, you know, you're, you had a, a guest, uh, Tim Story, who was on, and I, I listened to that podcast and I was fascinated by the sense of his life, really he galvanized who he was through others who empowered him. And he talked about the opportunity for many to be disempowered. And I, had a, I really had to shake my head and say, yes, in many ways, my, uh, our interview coming after his is so synchronistic because there are so many in our lives who we grow up with in our family, neighbors, friends, teachers. There are many people out there who are at the ready to help disempower us. The world is a really harsh and cruel place at times. And it is finding those around us who lift us up, who empower us, who help make us, bring us and connect to our strength that we need to continue to seek out. Narcissists can't do that. It isn't about us other than their needs being met. And there is a lot of destruction depending on how pathological that narcissism presentation becomes. I talk about the, um, the dark triad in Battle of the Titans, wherein there's a continuum. All of us are, we have some, some of us have very positive self-esteem, some of us are arrogant, and up further on along the continuum, on the very darkest end of that continuum, you have some very deep-seated malignant um, narcissism, which can be Violent, it could be destructive, and it can certainly be very hurtful psychologically and emotionally. So we have to make sure as humans that we connect to those who empower us. And that is really the essence of Battle of the Titans. Absolutely. And Tim Story had beautifully put it that we're going into the battlefield every day. So us, you know, in psychology, we'll call it self-care. And, you know, he called a holy ground to take care of ourselves and to put ourselves first so that we can um, walk consciously as we experience a lot of different people. Absolutely. So in, in chapter two, Deb, you know, and I um, had purchased your book last year when it first uh, came out and I was fascinated um, not only because of the title, but because um, me knowing you and all your uh, great work that you do in our field. But in chapter two, you start the chapter with the quote from uh, Brene Brown, one of my favorite um, authors, but owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy. The experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our life. So with that being said, who is Deborah Kaplan? What is her story? 
I could not write this book and feel comfortable being the author of this book unless I had put my own vulnerability and my own story out there. It's easy to write a book and give guideposts and give skills and give guidance to readers as to how to empower themselves and bring balance to a disproportionate power differential. It's easy to do that, but it's harder to be more self-revealing. And I thought it was incumbent upon me. It's important that I don't just sit above and beyond that. I actually say, Hey, you know, there's a reason why I wrote this book. And these are, this is some of the underbelly. This is some of the vulnerabilities that I bring. So I don't sit one up and I don't sit in, in, um, uh, contempt of or or in some position of never having experienced that. And I started with that uh, epitaph because I really believed that in order to own one's power, one has to own one's truth. As I was writing this book and talking to the editor, I wondered just, you know, how much of my story should I put out there? And the editor said, you You've got to, you can put as much of your story out as you want. And what I was really uh, concerned about was flaunting or using the book as really just a memoir because I didn't want it to be a memoir. And the editor said, no, actually, you're being very real. You're being very revealing. In sharing my power uh, struggle with my dad, in sharing about my parents' arguments, I wanted to really convey to the reader that from a very personal perspective, I get this. And so who I am is really a culmination of a little kid who had her own power struggles with her father. I mean, it was a true battle of the Titans. And there were some fights, and I don't mean physical violent fights. I mean, digging my heels in and owning my truth. And I had, um, growing up, I was, my dad absolutely loved me. My parents were, they were married 50 years before my dad passed away, before they could actually celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. But I was very enmeshed with my dad. And that created quite a power dynamic in their marriage, wherein it allowed my mom to kind of separate out. And it was very hard for me to get out from under my father's enmeshment. In my doing so, In many ways, it was like an emotional um, castration, if you will, which really plays into the notion of Greek mythology. And I thought, how do I put that down on paper? You know, what would a reader think if I write this? And I thought that I'm human, that I'm no different than anyone else I'm writing about. I'm experienced, I'm further down the road, I've delved into my story, and I've owned my truth. And that is sincere, authentic empowerment. And that is why I wanted to write my story because I come at this bearing who I am and owning it and feeling very proud of what I've accomplished. So what would be some of the pain points that 
Deborah Kaplan experience along the way to make her be the person that we're seeing today who who is writing books, who is um, teaching other therapists, who's working with clients to help them impact and learn from your your walk and your journey. You know, we, we often hear the term turning it to pain to purpose. So we, what would be some of those guideposts that, you know, perhaps some of the listeners and viewers can relate to and, and seeing how you've dealt with it and turned your life around to make it work for you? What was most important is uh, as I grew up and certainly as as a child, I had struggles, but I didn't really know what those struggles were. And I I did eventually go to therapy. And I remember looking back in my 20s and thinking, I want to I want to understand what my life is about. And I don't want to create I want to create patterns. But I ended up uh, marrying. I'm I'm divorced and I co-parent very well with uh, my children's father. And when we divorced, I didn't want to say, hey, he's the problem. So the pain point was not choosing to blame, but to look inward and say, what's my role here? What part of this do I own? And how do I do different? That pain point is a very tough uphill battle for many people, because oftentimes it's more comfortable to sit in a position of saying it's somebody else's fault. Instead, I chose to look inward and say, I'm divorcing. We're getting divorced because I want it different. I don't want better. I want different. And I wanted to be the best person I could be for my children. I wanted to be the most emotionally healthy I could be for them because that also was another pain point. It was becoming a a married partner choosing to be married or even in partnership. So that is one pain point that often gets... uh, is the inspiration for people to start looking inward. Having children or having a child is another pain point in how do I want to show up as a parent for this other vulnerable infant? Other pain points could include success in a career. How does that success get defined? And so for me, we talked about that a little earlier, I was willing and wanting to be successful, but on my terms and without trading on my values, which was to own my integrity, to do so with my own empowerment and to not allow others to disempower me simply because they felt they had more access to something I wanted. And I say that with a huge debt of gratitude to those who I cultivated in my life for support and to help empower me. And in many ways, my parents, my family were empowering. And because there is no perfect family of origin, family in which we were raised, it had its own issues. I had to grow out from under this enmeshment. And that's when I really found my true power. So let me take out some of those nuggets, you know, and and I hear this term that blame is the parking brake for our life, right? So you being able to to say that, yes, even though it got to this pain point and no one ever gets married to think we're going to divorce, but to look at this pain point and say, you know what, let me look at how can I do something different 
And I think that's a hallmark, um, a seed to plant for growth. And then how do we co-parent and how do I raise this child? How do I raise my my children? And again, I hear the word to do different and I hear legacy and all these other um, types of things. So what I'm here is one of what I'm hearing is one of the hallmarks of the pain to purpose in Deb's life along the journey was taking these painful moments. And I like to wrap it up in my words to say, what did I, what can I learn about myself from this? Yes. And And how do I grow from those vulnerabilities? And then how do I grow from these vulnerabilities? And then that fuels you forward to continue to grow. And and I think what one of the things I would want our viewers and our listeners to take from that is, yeah, it's a hard pill pill to swallow to look in the mirror or look in the woman in the mirror and say, you know what, what did I do to contribute to to get to this? But to use that to continue to grow and look at every day as a new opportunity to really walk in your power. Absolutely, Janie. And I see you as having done that. I, we are colleagues. I know you. I, I don't profess to know you well. You exude a sense of strength because you own your story and you know who you are. And I mean, that's a superpower. That, that's When we know who we are, no one can make us less than. We know who we are. We know who we're not. And th- there is no greater strength than that. There is no greater strength, Deb, and she said it best, when we know who we are and we also know whose we are and we walk in that power. So we'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Let's talk about it with Janie Lacey. Are you living day by day, nervous, in fear, or constantly feeling overwhelmed? This is probably due to an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders can develop from many different factors and can affect each and every person differently. Anxiety disorders can develop because of genetics, personality, stressful life events, and many other reasons. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America reports that more than 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety-related illnesses, and anxiety is also considered the most common mental disorder in the United States. You don't have to suffer alone. Call Life Counseling Solutions at 407-622-1770 or visit lifecounselingsolutions.com today. Has your anger ever taken you somewhere you regretted? Have you ever said something in anger that you wish you could take back? Have you ever hurt anyone as a reaction of your anger, physically or emotionally? Let's face it. Anger is a part of life. We all experience anger in our lives at some point. The question we need to ask ourselves is whether this has become a habit. What matters is how we deal with it. So call Life Counseling Solutions at 407-622-1770 or visit OrlandoAngerManagement.com today. You are listening to Let's Talk About It with Dr. Janie Lacey. To reach the show today, please call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Janie at lifecounselingsolutions.com. Now back to Let's Talk About It. Welcome back to Let's Talk About It with Janie Lacey. We have Deborah Kaplan with us, who's helping us understand the battle that we have with our Titans. You know, so, so Deb, you know, in chapter four, 
our true selves, which is actually one of my favorite chapters when I was reading your book for many reasons. And that's why I have this question in here so that we can share and gleam this information with everyone else. But you gave us a list of king baby uh, characteristics, which are commonly associated with entitlement, the big O entitlement. So first, what does king baby mean, king baby? And then why is it important for people to identify these traits and know how to recognize them in relationships? I'll start with your question, what is King Baby's? King Baby Syndrome or Queen Baby Syndrome was coined by Tom Cunningham in Hazelden and I think in 1986. And it really is a a syndrome or a a term that refers to somebody who ages into adulthood without the emotional maturity along for the ride. It's growing up to be an adult, but not adulting. It's growing up and becoming an adult in age, but still maintaining the emotional immaturity. So if you think of the image of a a big baby in a high chair, you know, I want what I want when I want it as, you know, as they uh, hit their, their rattle. And there are a lot of people who walk around with that sense of entitlement. Now, as children, it's absolutely appropriate because it's age developmentally sound. Little kids are, we are born very um, self-centered. It is, it has to be about us. We have to get our needs met. And as we talked about earlier, we grow out of that eventually when the world smacks us back and we have to play nice and get along with all around us. Well, that sense of entitlement is about, I deserve, but I have not really done something just for the sheer sake that I live and exist does not make something deserving, which means the sense of entitlement is something is owed to me and I must have this. The psychological or emotional distress of it, and if I don't get what I deserve, then I'm unhappy, becomes a battle cry for I have to get my needs met or else I'm unhappy. And that can be at the expense of people, places, and things. It certainly can be underwriting addiction. No doubt. We see a lot of this present in addictive behaviors and in addiction. So, Deb, with your work with couples then, so how would, in um, layman's terms, how would someone recognize when someone's operating from an entitlement standpoint? So when you're having your couples in front of you, what would be some of the clues that entitlement is existing in that relationship and it's contributing to the dysfunction of um, probably what brought them in? I believe that entitlement operates not just in a coupleship, but it certainly operates with a sense of one walking in the world. And as couples come together, you know, we, we find each other for purposes to play out what we have either consciously or unconsciously have yet to resolve. And when we come together, as I say, under that cosmic haze, that narcotic of um, hormones and neurotransmitters, we want to be that everything. And we want the other person to see us as that everything. After all, why bond together? Why attach? When I, as an individual, come together with another person, or if it's an open relationship, it doesn't matter. When we come together, believing that the only purpose to be together is for you other to serve my needs. Now, you know, entitlement is parading loud and clear. It's important that 
when individuals come together in a relationship that the relationship is understood as what what are we doing here together? What are you about? What am I about? And why are we together? And if I'm my purpose here is to serve your needs, and you partner think that your needs met, uh, deserve to be served, and I'm that person to do so, it really takes two, one to complete that role and one to demand it. And therefore, as a therapist, when I'm working with couples, it is not for me to determine what's best for the couple, but for me to understand what the couple desires and what is healthiest for them. And so I try to really elaborate and illuminate what they're operating under. What are the rules of their engagement, so to speak? I don't mean their marital engagement. I mean, what are the rules of their relationship and what is it they want to achieve? So every coupleship is not created equal and what works for one may not work for the other, but your job as a therapist is going to look at what are those barriers. And if it is a barrier of entitlement, then that will be what would be um, something that could prevent them from being um, as healthy as possible. However, they're coming to therapy. Absolutely. I mean, think about it It, from an arrogant place. So here, here would be the, the, the essence of arrogance. If couples came to me to say, Hey, Deb, you know, we want to live life according to what Deb Kaplan says. I'd be like, yeah, that's great. Because, you know, after all, if you do what I do, then you'll be fine. But nobody does that. And I would be so, (laughs) I, I, I mean, I would be so arrogant and entitled to believe that couples should follow what I say. Therefore, every coupleship is different. But what one uh, theme that I do really uh, emphasize for a coupleship is that healthy relationships are built with empowered individuals. And so to disempower one individual at the expense of the relationship is not sustainable and nor is it healthy. And it isn't even going to last long. And that's where control and exploitation comes into play. That's certainly a tweetable um, uh, statement that uh, healthy relationships are built with empowered individuals. So I want to stress that, you know, and kind of moving on and a few other concepts that you had in Battle of the Titans. There were some concepts that you introduced to us around narcissism using some of the Greek mythology examples like Cronius. Can you talk to us about self-esteem as it relates to narcissism? Yeah, we touched on it earlier when we, te- when we say that we're born with our needs completely dependent on other people, caregivers, those who love us, those that will empower us, and that we will, as infants, grow up to be the functioning and functional adults that we become. All of us have some level of self-esteem. We wake up, we brush our hair, we brush our teeth, we get dressed, we want to look and present ourselves well in the world. And that's positive, that's healthy, and that is a a wonderful benchmark. But when self-esteem is based on what others think of us, an external focus or validation of worth, now my worth is not based on how I feel about myself, but I'm basing my self-worth on what you, the world, or you other think of me. That can be a very slippery slope and at times very destructive because an individual such as someone with a very strong narcissistic personality, and I'm not talking about disorder, just a a strong need to feel validated. If that person pairs with another individual who struggles with their self-esteem and self-worth and is externally focused, 
that's a lock and a key. You've now got an individual who's willing to proverbially shine the light on the narcissist at all times. The narcissist really doesn't know how to relate well, and therefore they're using that person with a um, perhaps a struggling self-esteem for their own benefit. It's a unhealthy lock and key. It cannot necessarily, uh, it, it could devolve to something very destructive, but self-esteem is built on an internal sense and focus of self-worth, not dependent on externals. So in speaking about self-esteem and self-worth and depending on externals, in chapter five, you use this term, narcissistic supply. So can you explain to our listeners and our viewers, what exactly is narcissistic supply? And then who is most vulnerable to be a target of that narcissistic supply? Answer your question. I'm going to ask you, Janie, to reflect on, have you ever met somebody who is just using people around them for the purpose of shining the light on them. Not to engage, not to relate, not to connect, but that the person who is self-centered or in terms of uh, exploitation or control needing to be validated. And the people, the places, and the things in their life become nothing more than inventory or, if you will, uh, a supply of validation and a supply of worth. Think of individuals who maybe uh, partner with someone to make them look good, have financial access to money, perhaps have access to a job. The individuals who do nothing more than inflate, anyone who has children who had jumping castles, you have to constantly pump the air up into a jumping castle to keep it alive and afloat. Uh, Once you take the electricity away, once you take the air out of the jumping castle, it deflates. And the supply is no different. Once a narcissistic individual has used up all they can, has gotten what they need to get their needs met, from people around them, they'll go on to other places. They'll cycle back. But again, it's all one directional. And that supply is really an inventory of validation that the narcissist is as wonderful as they are, although that self-confidence is a house of cards because it really isn't self-worth. It is insecurity. Absolutely. And I couldn't have, could not have said that better. And my answer to your question is absolutely yes. Yeah, <laughs> and we once, all do. <laughs> and once you've um, encountered that crazy making, uh, you learn the lesson, you never want to be back in that situation again. You know, I can recall even um, the example comes to mind of speaking on the phone with someone who would fall into that category and the conversation is all about them. And then you remember to yourself, they not once asked you, how are you doing, Janie? Right. <laughs> It's a one directional relationship and it's depleting. Absolutely. Very draining when that person calls or, you know, you're going to see that person. It kind of creates this um, anxiety. So those are some of the very practical things um, identifying that in in my own uh, past. So, but I do think it's important for people to understand that concept because a lot of times, and I'm sure you experience this too with clients, they can explain certain things but like the term narcissistic supply and these terms can help us categorize them. So when things are happening or if we're looking back, we can understand the crazy making um, and to validate your own experience, especially if you happen to be a target of, uh, of, um, of the narcissistic supplies you mentioned. Yeah, I wanted to add something because I think this is very important for listeners. 
that relationships that involve uh, narcissistic exploitation or control or power or dynamics that are in imbalance, one will notice a um, heavy lifting, as I call it. It's a lot of work to make that relationship stay functional or alive or to sustain the relationship. So the emotional heavy lifting that it requires to make the relationship functional is, should never be depleting. There should never be, it's ultimately a balance. It's not always 50-50, but a hallmark of an unhealthy relationship and one in which there is power and control is the heavy lifting it takes to make the waters calm. And that's really important for the listeners to understand that healthy relationships often do not require such heavy lifting. Absolutely. And as we shift a little bit into relationship dynamics, you know, I can think about even my own experience. And sometimes we get a setup of only family history or role models of thinking that a relationship is self-sacrificing. It is from a place of lack versus the healthy dynamics that is life-giving and that there should be more positives than there's negatives. So part of that in therapy, and I would imagine you take your clients on that journey, is being able to look at where do we learn um, what a healthy relationship looks like? Where do we learn how to be in a relationship so we can unlearn those things so that we can relearn some of the um, positives and more relational dynamics that will create a healthier life for us? That's a great question. When I said earlier that when I, um, it was unfortunate that I divorced, it was never something that I ever thought I would be experiencing. One of the reasons that I uh, was felt so unhappy, but yet at peace with the decision is that I wanted to model what a healthy relationship was for my children as they were young and they would grow up to observe and see. I wanted to be a role model for what was healthy, for what a healthy, empowered individual looked like. To your question, where do we learn this? We learn it from the family we grow up in, hopefully, if that's not healthy enough. We learn it from what we observe around friends and their family. And as our circles increase in scope, as we age through school, through relationships, through our own relationships, through therapy, through others that we look and say, wow, that's a powerful couple, as in they support each other. No one at no one individual's expense is their success. It is about the relationship, not about one riding over the other. And that's the message for individuals to see that relationships are empowering and they're life sustaining. They're not depleting and they're not in many ways self defeat. So we have to help model that for those in our life and even for those that we don't even recognize or watching. Relationships are empowering. So in your work with couples, I mean, how do you, you you talk about this in your book, but I think it's important because I sometimes hear people misunderstand what shame looks like. So how do we recognize when shame is playing a part in relationship dynamics? The answer to that question is a very complex one, and I will do my best to to bring it down to a digestible nugget. Shame presents in so many different forms and in so many different ways. 
we all have and need a healthy level of shame. It's how we learn compassion. It's how we learn humility. And it's how we learn really to to be who we want to be without compromising on our values and our integrity. If our shame has not been addressed, if I had not looked at my vulnerabilities, if I had not looked at the aspects of my life or of my experiences that I was unhappy with, I would forever have a pain point that should it be touched or breached or seen by another person, and I feel shame, I would not be able to own that and acknowledge to myself or to another person that this has been my experience. So, for example, if I'm embarrassed about um, uh, a conversation I had with an individual and I feel some shame about what I said, if the person were to come back and say, hey, Deb, you know, I really I felt uneasy about our conversation, if I could not handle that sense of self of being really confronted or challenged by my words, I might attack verbally. I may put up a wall of words. I may put up a defense, may look in a number of different ways. If I can own it, I can sit comfortably, uncomfortably, but comfortably in, I apologize. You're right. I've hurt your feelings. And I'm really sorry. That bothers me that I did that. And I'm, I apologize to you. What can I do? Is there anything I can do to change what, what has happened or to help heal that? When an individual or in the coupleship, there is a sense of attack or defense and an inability to hear the partner, we know that shame is operating and therefore has to be addressed because the fact that we feel shame is human. The fact that we may not be able to deal with it is more about a wound and wounding to the ego that we haven't built some strength in how to own our truth and how to own our mistakes because owning our mistakes is as vital as owning our truth. Very well said. I think you did a great job making it very digestible and practical so people can understand that. So I'm going to throw another one at you. Let's see. Um, (laughs) I know it's a very complex um, conversation around shame. So if someone's listening to that and they relate to that, they think to themselves that, you know what, it's hard for me to take feedback and I get very defensive. Um, if they've had repetitive feedback that said that people that feel like they can't talk to them, they're walking on eggshells, like what can they start to do to heal the shame that can probably prevent them from being that empowered individual to walk down in a relationship lane? The person has to be capable So there's whether one has the interest or the capacity, the willingness or the capacity. If you were to, for example, confront me or challenge me nicely or even maybe not so nicely on something I've said, and I have the capacity and the desire to look inward, then I want to ask, I want to be curious. And that's what I invite my couples in in the work I do with couples and individuals to be curious about themselves and their life, to be curious about how do I come off to other people? If you were to confront me and I'm curious enough and value our relationship, I would say, can you tell me more? Or if I'm quite aware of what I've said, I'd be curious as to, hmm, okay, I've hurt your feelings and I, wanted, I want to repair that. 
And I will be really looking at what can I do different so that I can relate to you. The being curious in many ways puts a level of compassion for oneself in that I'm not having to defend my actions so much as I'm able to own them and now look to do something different. And if I'm curious about what brings me to or what has driven my behavior, now all I have to do is look at what can I do different instead of berating myself or defending myself to others that I love because I've hurt them. I I don't know that that's answered your question. No, absolutely. So being compassionate, being empathetic, you know, having curiosity, leaning into the other person and taking responsibility. Sounds taking responsibility, which leads to that big inward leads to maturity, which would lead to better relationships. Which is underwriting that sense of narcissism, because if I don't have the capacity to look inward, because no one's ever actually held me accountable or challenged me in my thinking and I'm entitled, then I'm going to have some real tough times ahead in relationships. Absolutely. So as we get ready to, to wind down in our last uh, few minutes, I know you touched on it a little bit earlier about that dark side of power. Could you share a little bit about those dark traits and how people can recognize them in their potential partners? I would love to come back and talk more on that and expand on this because it's so vital. And the reason I wrote Battle of the Titans is to help empower those that feel or are disempowered in their relationship. The dark side of Um, narcissism, psychopathy, when we are being controlled, when our truth is not tolerated in the relationship, if we don't have the right or the space in the relationship to voice our opinion, or that our uh, requests or desires don't matter, or we are quieted, disempowered, or silenced, that is how you can begin to note There is an imbalance of power, not because two people, three or whatever the relationship is, uh, whether it's working or romantic. If I'm not able to be who I am authentically, then we know we are walking into the dark waters of the dark triad, which is the darkest end of the personality spectrum. Psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, malignant narcissism. If I have to quiet myself, disempower myself in order to make the relationship work. Fast and furious feedback, that's a problem. And that is where we begin to look at what will I uh, do different? What do I need to do different? And can I? Because some people are trapped. And that's where financial control really uh, strangleholds a lot of, tends to be more females than males in that regard. They're the victims more so of that. So if someone did want to find out more information and, and get more info um, to expound on these, these concepts, where can they find your book? My book is online on booksellers. You can find it at independent bookstores. You can find it at my website, DebraKaplanCounseling.com. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I don't actually have an Instagram account, but um, I'm easily found online. 
Well, we uh, certainly want to thank you, Deborah Kaplan, Deb Kaplan, for taking your time and for writing the book, Battle of the Titans. I believe many couples and many people will start their recovery journey by picking it up and recognizing that they're not crazy. There are some things that they can learn and to start their healing journey. So we appreciate you. Thank you, Janie. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Absolutely. So in the words of our esteemed guest, self-empowerment requires courage to take action, even when the action is hard or frightening. In an uncertain world, one thing is not. Feeling powerless is not the same as abdication of our power. Their opening quote of chapter seven, leveling the playing field by Stephen Covey states, Every human has four endowments, self-awareness, conscious, independent will, and creative imagination. These give us the ultimate human freedom, the power to choose, to respond, and to change. So until next time, this is your host, Dr. Janie Lacey. Thank you for tuning in. Let's Talk About It can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Please join your host, Dr. Janie Lacey, for another edition of the show next week. 